Well, what Bob was saying is, I, f- I don't know why I forgot that, to invite you to come to the early service. If you can get your wig on or your teeth in in time, you know, come on, <laughs> be here. Be here early, because it does save a seat for later. I'm just kidding. Just, just, just to be, you know, we want you here. We're also, we know we don't have the adult Sunday school classes that day, so that there's a little uh, smoother flow here on the campus, so uh, to bring somebody with you and see them here about Jesus. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 6, so if you want to turn there with me, and um, uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll bring one right from the back. You can have one that you can look at yourself, and we want you in God's Word. We want you reading God's Word. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 25. All right, anybody got a Bible, put your hand up. If you need it, you can just take it with you. Right here on the front row, Letty, we got one more for you up here, friend. All right, Matthew 6. Starting verse 25, here's what Jesus said. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if Solomon, or if, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, somebody said, and I'm not sure who gets the credit for this, but they said, fear is the polio of the soul. Fear is the polio of the soul. It can cripple us. It can immobilize us. It can prevent us from from stretching. It can prevent us from trying or from doing the right thing in a timely fashion. And yet we worry. Why do we worry? Most of what we worry about doesn't happen. Remember how there was going to be a great big four-inch rainstorm this week? I mean, it was all over the freeway and uh, didn't happen. Well, fear and anxiety and worry are neighbors. They live down the street from each other. And five times in this passage alone, Jesus uses the word anxious or anxiety. And over and over in the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as saying, don't be afraid, fear not. And we believe that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, is actually God come in human flesh. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's setting out the values of his kingdom. He's not the kind of king who's going to rule through fear and intimidation. And so he's telling us what God thinks and what God values. And he's telling us, Jesus tells us, focus on the kingdom of God and on God's righteousness. Not on yourself, not on your fears, not on your anxiety. Focus on God. Fully devoted followers pursue God's kingdom and righteousness above all else, just like Jesus did. And the opposite of anxiety and fear is trust and faith. And fully devoted followers have faith in God. They have placed their faith in Christ, their trust in the Lord, because God has us covered, past, present, and future. I mean, God takes our past, and he forgives our sin, and he says he puts our sin into the sea of his forgetfulness, separating us from our sin as far as the east is from the west, to be remembered no more. That's good news. 
And then he takes our present. And he fills us with purposeful work to accomplish in his name. God has a plan for your life. Believe it. I mean, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is committed to saying, God, what is your plan for my life? And how do I fulfill that plan? And when you're asking that question and you're living in the center of God's will, do you know, nothing comes into your life that didn't come through God's hands. You can trust him. And if you just keep following him every day and keep in the center of his will, you're, you don't have to worry about, am I going to fail? You're going to succeed where it matters most, in the eyes of God. So God takes our present and fills us with purpose. He also takes care of our future. I mean, it is filled with Christ and with the joy of the Lord in heaven. And he's got all that worked out. Dean Davis today is celebrating him. I mean, think about it. He's, he has stepped into the presence of his Savior. And he's, I mean, it's where God's going to settle all scores and where we're going to live by the values of God's kingdom, where the light never goes out because Christ is the light. And we're going to get to spend eternity there. So in this passage that we're looking at, there's three groups of people. Not the ones we talked about last week of the followers and the uh, curious and the cynics. There's three groups of people based on their faith. And I'm not talking just about faith like they do in our world today. Well, I have faith or I have faith in myself, but, uh, you know, or some type of spirituality. I'm talking about placing your life, placing your trust and your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, in what he accomplished by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, that he is the only person who can be our Savior, and he offers himself as uh, our Savior and as our substitute uh, for sin, so that and he's the only one who can get your soul right with God. You can't do that by yourself. And surrounding Jesus as he talked and living in our world are the same three groups, people of no faith, people with little faith, and people with great faith. Look at he says, verse 31, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. The phrase, the Gentiles, Jesus could have substituted that with the world. For the world seeks after these things. Jesus is talking about people with no faith. And here they are, you know, trying to make it in this world. They're chasing survival or success, and they're living with certain anxiety for their daily needs and survival. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? How will I sustain myself? How will I survive life? And they assume it's all up to me. It's all on my shoulders. I take care of those things. I provide for myself and my family. How am I going to do that? How do I make my money stretch to the end of the month? How do I pay the rent? How do I pay, get my car paid for and my gas? How will I survive? How do I help my kids do better in school? How can I pay for my kids' braces or sports? And, and so they worry and they're anxious. In fact, some people take it to an art form. They, they somehow think that's a mom or a dad's job is to worry what they don't realize is they've taken on a load that they were never meant to carry. It's like they're trying to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. And that's pretty lonely and pretty hard on a good day, and it's impossible in a, on a crisis day. And God never intended for you to live that way, to be in charge of everything and all alone in your decision-making. This group doesn't realize that God is the one who cares the most about them, and he's the one who ultimately provides everything for them and for everybody else in the world. But this group has been growing, the no faith group. If you were to Google rise of the nuns, I'm not talking Catholic here, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nothings, rise of the nuns, people in America who are atheist or agnostic, 
or claim no religious affiliation is increasing. It's 23% of all American adults. It's 36% among young millennials, people born 1990 to 96. That's not a healthy trend. It's not moving in the right direction. To have more and more people thinking it's all up to me, I can do it all myself. Jesus said your heavenly Father knows that you have needs. And he invites everyone, even the Gentiles, even the outsiders, people with no faith. He says, come follow me. He says, those of you who are weary and need rest, come to me and I'll shoulder the burden. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest to your souls. You and I know a lot of people like this. Next week, we'll have a lot of people who are going to be here for Easter, some under duress from family members, some out of guilt because, you know, they're CEOs, they're Christmas, Easter only. And um, I want us to be very gracious to them in the process. Some, but this group of nuns, they're not going to feel any guilt for that day. Going to church even part, once or twice a year is not part of their tradition. And so they're going to need a special invitation from you to say, hey, wouldn't you like to come and spend the day uh, with us and uh, hear about Jesus? It's a great opportunity to link the people you know with the Lord that you love. And so I invite you, don't just waste this week. Don't let it get by. Bring somebody with you. The next group of people is where most of us live most of the time. People of little faith. I mean, here Jesus is talking to the people of little faith. They have some, and here's what he would say to them. Number one, it's in verse 25. Life is more than food. It's more than clothing. And in the land of Israel, it's very hot. It's very dry. A lot of it's desert. It's brown all the time. Maybe gets one rain a year. And in Jesus' day, people would have been concerned when they were traveling. Do we have enough water? How are we going to get to the next water spot? And even in that dry land, God would use even the dry land to say, depend on me. You don't have to worry about your thirst. I can take care of you. See, most of all of us here in the room are blessed on these things. We don't worry about if we're going to get to eat. We worry about what we're going to eat. We're going to be more discerning, right? We eat for pleasure, not primarily for survival. If most of us missed the rest of the meals of all the whole day or maybe even the whole week, we would still be able to be here you know, and we'd complain, but we would have survived it. Life is more than food, Jesus is saying. The big deal in life is not what you eat or drink or wear. Your life will not be measured by these things. It will be measured by your love and devotion to God and how did you live out being part of his kingdom here on earth. Number two, Jesus said, look at the birds. They don't work. God cares for them. It's verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Now, that's what he's saying. He cares way more for you than for the birds. It's not the point that the birds don't work. Birds do work. They make nests. They lay eggs. They gather food, maybe right off your fig tree. You know, they aren't concerned for tomorrow. They aren't hoarding stuff. They aren't worrying about the future. And Jesus said, you are worth so much more to God than the birds. And then he said in verse 27, anxiety won't make your life longer and it won't make you grow taller. This translation ESV says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? There are some translations because the word there can, can mean both, I guess, of which of you by being anxious can add a cubit or 18 inches to, a, to his height. 
In other words, can you make yourself get taller with worrying? No. Can you make your life longer by worrying? No. In fact, worrying probably shortens your life. And then in verse 28, he says, look at the flowers. God loves to share his artistic abilities, his goodness and his grace and his beauty, and he's going to take care of you. Look at verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. It's interesting to me that alongside of other basic survival needs like drink or food, Jesus brings up clothing several times. That clothing would make this list of things that people worry about. And this King Solomon, we know some about him. We know he was at the, the zenith of, of Israel's glory days and that you know, he must have been quite a dresser. I mean, we know he lived a luxurious life of magnificence that was paid for by everybody else in the country, um, and that God gave him wisdom beyond his years, and God used him to build the, the great temple for God in Jerusalem. But I don't remember him getting any credit in the Old Testament for his haberdashery. Do you? I'll, we'll have to go look and see if there's any verse that talks about how his splendid outfits... <coughs> But, you know, of course, he was dressing to please the ladies in his life, and there were a lot of those. So he, it probably was like a job, you know, and a lot of work. Well, people used to dress up to come to church. There was kind of like your church clothes, you know what I'm saying? And for men in a traditional setting, it was a, a, a suit and a tie. Uh, for women, it was a dress and a hat. Uh, or some kind of veil or nylons that had a line up the back. And... Um, you know, people used to dress that way. But you look at us, look around. We have slipped a long ways. <laughs> and uh, I'm not suggesting we go back, all right? And, uh, you know, even you look at Jesus, even though he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he, he just wore the clothing of the common man of his day, nothing flashy, when he was sharing God's eternal truth. He didn't get dressed up. He never wore a coat and tie. So I don't get too concerned about who wears what to church, especially if they're younger than I am. I just thank God they're here, right? So uh, when we, even when we have them come up front, it doesn't matter. You're here. God bless you. Come on up and share what, what God has. And, and I'm glad they're here. And this was Jesus' thought on this. Was, Why are you anxious about clothing? So we can all relax on that, huh? Where's Bob? That one time he started the service without his coat on and we, we worked him for it. Sorry, Bob. You know, and then verse 30, it says, God provides even for the grass and the weeds. If he does that for something that's here today and gone tomorrow, he's going to love you and take care of you. Look, it says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Little faith. Jesus loved people of little faith. A lot of them. He chose to be with them often. One time there's a, I mean, a story in Matthew 8 where he's in the boat with his disciples and those boats are only about 15 feet long. They're not very sturdy. They probably overloaded it with all of the remedial students that they had to get across the lake. Then a big storm comes up. They are scared for their lives. And Jesus is sound asleep, tossing away up there on the end of the boat. And they go, wake him up. And they say, hey, wake up. Don't you care? We're going to die. And I like the way the story, Jesus, before he did anything about the wind and the waves, he looks at them and he goes, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith? Then he stands up in this rocking boat and says, peace be still, and calmed all the waves. 
Or the time where they were late getting home from an appointment, so they're taking their boat across the lake at night, and it's stormy that night too, and the wind is against them, and it's just taking too long. And about halfway through the night, they see what they think is a ghost, and of course, it scares all of them. And, and then Jesus says, you know, don't be afraid, it is I. And Peter says, well, Lord, if that's really you, tell me to walk on the water to you. So Jesus says, come on, which I think, you know, if, if it had been a phony out there, he would have said, come on, right? I mean, because then Peter would have sunk, and... And, uh, and um, so Peter gets out and he walks on the water and he's watching Jesus. And then when he looks around at the wind and the waves, then he gets uh, afraid and then he sinks. And it says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Or in Matthew 16, the disciples have run out of food and they're worried about their next meal. And Jesus is aware of this and he says to them, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Like God's promised to take care of you. Trust him. Or then they're on one of their preaching missions in Matthew 17 and Jesus is there with all the disciples. He's healing people, he's preaching and then he kind of, in a lull, I guess maybe it was a commercial break or something, but he took uh, Peter, James, and John and slipped out the side and went up this mountain and was transfigured in front of them. But while, and, and I mean, that's a different story. We'll get to it someday. But while those three are up there just with Jesus celebrating on the mountain, down below is still the huge crowd with the other nine. And a crisis develops. A man shows up with a son who has a demon spirit in him, and he begs him, please heal my son. And these disciples have done miracles before because of the power of Jesus in them. And so they, they make an attempt to, to heal this boy, and it doesn't work. Fortunately, Jesus just showed up in time and did the job for them. So later, they're really bothered by this. We tried to do a great work for you, Jesus, and we failed. And so they come to him and say, Jesus, why weren't we able to complete the miracle? Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, this is Matthew 17, verse 20. He says, because of your little faith. <clears throat> your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I don't know if they were humbled to think, wow, I haven't tried to move any mountains. Maybe my faith isn't even as big as the teeniest seed. So it's like the disciples were in training. He's trying to grow their faith from little to big to stretch it and expand it and to help them to grow in that. This week, Cindy and I were reading this book, Note to Self, by Joe Thorne, and uh, he talks about fear. Here's, here's part of what he says. He says, Dear self, you often fear the wrong things. For example, often you are fearful of conflict, suffering, or the loss of good things like respect or acceptance by certain kinds of people. It's understandable from a worldly perspective. For these things you are afraid of losing are themselves worldly. This doesn't mean they're bad, but they're temporal. So many of the things that you value are good gifts from God, but they do not last, nor are they supposed to be something from which you find your identity and lasting hope. We have that only in Jesus Christ, don't we? So God gives us many good gifts, but many of them are just to help us make it through today. And we don't need to fear. We simply trust him. Jesus is wanting for us what he was wanting for his first followers. He's wanting us to outgrow our fear and increase our faith. He wants us to grow up in our faith, to mature, not just to stay where we are. 
So he starts with people of no faith, and he grows the ones who have little faith, and is moving towards great faith. Look at verse 33. This really is the capstone. This is the jewel. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God in your life. What does it mean to be part of the kingdom? It's not a place. It's to seek first the reign of God or the rule of God in your heart. To say, God, you are in charge in my life. Whatever you want, the answer is yes. Great faith has as its focus the kingdom of God and righteousness. The person isn't thinking about themselves or about their needs or their wants. They're thinking about others and about serving others by, and serving Christ in that process and about what God, does God desire in my life and in my family. Jesus notes only two people in his ministry that I can recall of having great faith. And both of them were outsiders to Jesus' normal audience of Jews. The first is in Matthew 8. He's in Capernaum, which was on the Sea of Galilee, a little city Jesus kind of adopted for the home base of his ministry. And there was a centurion who lived and worked there and was in charge of everybody. And so he was hated by the Jewish people because it was a constant reminder of the domination of Rome. But he happened to have a servant who got paralyzed and was suffering. And the centurion came and asked Jesus, would you please heal my servant? But then he said, oh, I am unworthy, though, to have you come into my home, which probably would have been one of the richest homes in the area, in the whole neighborhood. But he said, Jesus, I'm unworthy to have you into my house. Please just heal my servant from a distance. If you just say the word, he will be healed. And without seeing him, just speak. Well, Matthew 8, 10 says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to everybody who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then the other instance is found in Matthew 15. Jesus is going on vacation, and he is wanting to leave behind all the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, 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 the needy people and to take a break from the preaching. And he, So he leaves the land of Israel. It's the only time he did this as an adult. And he heads north for a little bit of R&R and took the disciples with him, probably getting a little time out for them as well to uh, catch their breath and to get ready for the fateful trip to Jerusalem that's coming when Jesus dies on the cross. But even when he gets to uh, Tyre and Sidon, there's a woman who's in crisis, and she has a demon-possessed daughter, so she's begging for help. And at first, Jesus refused to, to even speak to her, and she's begging and begging, and finally he says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. So here are the two people with the greatest faith that Jesus pointed out. One, a powerful person, an outsider. This other is this woman who has nothing and a, a, a troubled child. And she has a humility and hope because Jesus showed up. And Jesus honored her request and called her a woman of great faith. Of course, the person who uh, is the greatest example of faith in fulfilling God's righteousness was Jesus himself. And we celebrate some of that today on Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of what we call Passion Week. It was Jesus' passion or his concern for the lostness of the world that took him to Jerusalem. 
Actually, what sparked his travels that direction was his friend Lazarus, who lived very close to Jerusalem in a suburb called Bethany, um, <clears throat> had died. And Jesus showed up and raised him from the dead. And this made Jesus, I mean, it, it just the most famous person in the country. And so when he was there just outside of Bethany, on the top of the Mount of Olives, you can see down into the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem, all the pilgrims come through there. So there would have, they would have more than doubled the size of the city. And when Jesus got to that spot, I mean, it's top of the world. The throng, the throng is cheering. They're putting palm branches in the path. They're putting their own coats in the path. They're yelling. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. And then Jesus walks down into the valley, the Kidron Valley. Really, it was the valley of despair because he can see the people who are there who have hard hearts, even though they're there trying to look religious. And Jesus' heart is broken. And he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, says, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. And now it's too late. He went into the city for one last chance, one last sermon, one last warning. And then while during that week, they had the celebration of the sacrificial lamb, which the Jews would do in Passover every year. But Jesus added a new layer of meaning to it by basically saying, in the bread that's on the table, it's my body which is broken and given to you. In the cup of wine that's on the table, this is my blood which is poured out on your behalf. And then there was the dark night of the soul, Christ's anguish in Gethsemane, where he would have been practicing what he preached of instead of worrying and being anxious, focus on God's kingdom and his righteousness. And so he prayed, Lord, if it's possible, not my will, but yours be done. But if possible, take this cup away from me. God did not do that so that you and I might be set free. We might be forgiven of our sin. And so Jesus was arrested that night in the garden. He was put on trial. He was stripped and he was beaten. The same guy who said, don't worry about what you're going to wear, wore nothing for you and for me, so that you and I, who have no righteousness of our own, our own righteousness is called filthy rags, that we might be dressed in the righteous robes of Christ. He was condemned and crucified to death. And Jesus had said, seek first the kingdom. And then he lived it himself. And God's plan for his life included his death on the cross. Do you know, in Matthew 10, Jesus had said, do not fear those who can kill the body, who cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying, you get so worried about things. What are you worried about? Why are we so anxious? It's a lack of, lack of trust, a lack of faith. Instead of just saying, God, you be in charge of my life. Best as I can, I'm going to follow the path you put in front of me. And maybe you have a difficult decision to make. God will guide. He will give you enough light as, as you move forward, as you just follow him in obedience. And we can get all so anxious about uh, the, the drink and the food and the clothing, the shelter and survival and, and uh, positions of, uh, for our jobs and wealth and opportunity and, and how Christians are ostracized for their faith and concern for our own mortality, or mortality and fear that we're going to suffer or die. And, and Jesus did both of those as part of God's plan. God's plan is best. You don't have to be anxious. Just follow God's plan for your life. Look at the benefits to everybody in the world because Jesus followed God's plan. And then he was exalted. He arose.
course, that's next week, so we'll save that part. Jesus said in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will take care of the details. God will be sure that you have what you need. And Jesus told us, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Dear self, you don't need to be afraid of anything, but you do need to fear your God with a holy reverence. Such fear is an aspect of faith that responds to God's holiness, sovereignty, and transcendence. This higher form of fear is that which leads to awe, adoration, and carefulness of life because of the intimate knowledge of your maker and redeemer. What should you fear in life above a holy God who forgives the sins of unholy men like yourself? What can be taken from you? Your possessions can go up in flames, but you have treasure in heaven and stand to inherit the kingdom. Your reputation might be sullied, but you are justified in Jesus. You may be rejected by those you admire, but you are accepted by God. You may be hated, but your Father in heaven loves you with undying love. What is there in this life to fear? Jesus said, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Just trust God. It's a choice. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word and how you speak to each one of us. I pray that we will apply this to our own lives and our heart, to our own decision-making, our own uh, way of communicating and dealing with problems and setbacks, that we will be people who choose to not live in fear except to fear God. And then we will be people who let go of our fears to grow in our faith, our faith of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's doing in us now and what he's going to accomplish in this world and beyond. So I pray that you will grow us in our faith, that we will be people who seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and let all the other details fall into place. And we thank you that you are there for us protecting us, leading us, guiding us, and blessing us. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Amen.